Barbara, I want to thank you for being my first guest on Take This Down. Uh, you know, it's a privilege and an honor to be able to have this conversation with you. Uh, you know, I'll give you a backstory a little bit later why you were the first person I wanted to have on uh, this show. Oh, I'm scared now. <laughs> no, I, I, I'm, I'm pleased to be here. Well, you know, uh, I guess I won't I won't bury the lead. You know, the reason why, you know, when I thought of this concept to take, uh, you know, take this down, you know, there was no other person that I wanted to have first other than you. Uh, when I first came to Tarrant County, you know, maybe 10 years ago now where it's at. I remember um, having lunch with you at Cheesecake Factory and you kind of just, you know, embracing me, but also uh, helping me get involved in the community from our time on the Race and Culture Task Force to other uh, initiatives. And it always meant a lot to me because, you know, you didn't have to take that time. You didn't have to do that. Uh, but I, I, I truly believe and in, in Thank you for that, uh, because of the opportunity that you gave me, it's allowed me to do a lot of more things to be involved in the community. So uh, you were always going to be the first guest, whether you knew it or not. So thank well, you. Well, I will. Mean, the truth is that for a young person coming into Fort Worth, ready to be involved in the community, that meant a lot to me because I've always been one of those who said, we've got to get more young people involved, uh, not just, you know, to go higher on the corporate ladder, but to actually do something for this community in this community. And you were willing to do that. And, and I appreciate you reaching out. No, absolutely. Well, you know, I know everyone knows Bob Bray Sanders, the journalist, the, the, the TV producer, the Hall of Fames, the Emmy Award winning journalist. But, you know, at your core, who is Bob Bray Sanders? Bob Bray Sanders is a guy whose family goes back almost 160 years now in Tarrant County, who grew up under segregation, the Jim Crow laws, and who was inspired by so many people that he felt that he had to commit to try to help change his surroundings, his community, his state, his, his country, if he could. And I saw that through journalism. And I had a lot of people encouraging me to do that. So, uh, but I'm representative of a lot of people who touched my life as I was growing up because in a way they saw more in me than I saw in myself at some point. You know, unpack that for me. I know you said, what, 186 years in Tarrant County? Well, almost 160 years 160. in Tarrant County. Uh, going back past uh, 1886, I mean, my great-grandmother was born free here and or I think 1857 or oh, wow. so. Gotcha. So we go back that far. Is there a particular area in Fort Worth or in Tarrant County you're, you, you can trace your roots back to? Yeah, in fact, we still own part of that land. Uh, my great-grandfather, who was born in South Texas, came to Tarrant County with his uncle. Now, keep in mind, his uncle was the brother of the slave owner who owned them. <laughs> but, but the uncle brought him here, freed him, here in Tarrant County, then gave him a couple of 300 acres of land. So from the, the very beginning, our family owned land, which meant they were taxpayers right. from the very beginning, which is even more significant when you think about Jim Crow. By the time I got here, my family had been paying taxes for well over 100 years in Tarrant County, and yet I could not go to the zoo except one day out of the year. There were certain public places that I couldn't go to. Uh, 
even though my family have, you know, provide those spaces for other people. You know, the Fort Worth Zoo, you know, it was, it was amazing because uh, they had an amusement park there. They had um, a swimming pool that we could go to one day out of the year. Uh, we're stock show time here in Fort Worth. Uh, we could only go to the stock show one day out of the run, Negro Achievement Day. Uh, same thing with the fair. And even when we could, we could go to the stock show, we couldn't go to the rodeo because they didn't allow blacks at the rodeo. But I came along during that change. I was graduating high school at the time the change was coming, and I knew that my teachers knew that we were going to be part of that change, so they tried to prepare us for that. And so, you know, growing up, knowing, you know, during the 50s and 60s and segregation, you know, at any point did you feel like, you know, discouraged or were you always motivated and hopeful for what the change that you were going to make? You know what? I was not discouraged because of the people I had around me. I'm, I'm talking about the teachers at I.M. Terrell High School for sure, uh, who many of them should have been in other professions, really, other than teaching. But they weren't allowed in those professions. My biology teacher probably should have been working for Dow Chemical or someplace like that. My journalism teacher probably should have been working for the New York Times. But they couldn't. I mean, it, it just wasn't allowed. But they told us that we could do what they were not going to be able to do. So they prepared us for that. And when I started looking at it, and, and again, I got to go back to my parents, too. We were not taught to be afraid of white people. And we knew what many white people did, uh, certainly in, in the Deep South and also here in Fort Worth as well. But we were taught not to be afraid and that you could stand with anybody. When I went off to college, which would be my first integrated schooling experience, uh, the question was, are you black kids leaving IM Terrell prepared to go into an integrated situation and compete? Well, it, several of us went to the University of North Texas now, it was North Texas State then. We went, and after the second day of class, we knew we could compete because those teachers at I.M. Terrell had taught us so well and had prepared us so well uh, that we were ready uh, to meet that challenge. Yeah, you know, I know, you know, I personally know a lot about the IM Tell history, but probably not as nearly as much as you being a graduate. I know many people in Fort Worth now see IM Terrell as a magnet school, but can you talk a little bit about the history of IM Terrell? Man, we could go on forever about <laughs> IM Terrell. And, and keep in mind, we're about, it's just about a mile away from where we're sitting. But keep in mind that IM Terrell was not just a black high school, it was the original. Black school in Fort Worth started out as the colored school. Uh, and I.M. Terrell, who would be the principal, and, and that school was later named for him. But that school was not just for Fort Worth. There were at least 17 cities around here that sent their black kids to I.M. Terrell because they didn't have schools for them. I'm talking about as far away as Weatherford, Mansfield, Roanoke. Uh, the kids from Mansfield, for example, they had to ride the Continental Trailways bus. Can you imagine what time they had to get up in order to come to downtown Fort Worth and then walk the mile to I.M. Terrell? That was what we were producing. And you had all of these teachers who knew that they were representatives for all of these young kids, uh, eager young kids who wanted to learn, came to learn, and did in fact learn because the teachers felt that if they failed 
you. They were failing themselves. It was not in them to have you fail. Mr. Stevens, I mean, I, I, I'm the last of 11 kids. So by the time I got to Terry. Is that why you're kind of skinny? <laughs> you, you ain't last as well. <laughs> they, they, well, I mean, if you, if you listen to my brothers and sisters, uh, they, they, they thought my older brothers and sisters, because all of them were older, uh, they would say, you, you know, uh, you were babied. You know, I'm still the baby brother to this day. Right. You understand that. Uh, and, and that you were babied and uh, you didn't have to do the kind of work we did. You never got spankings or whippings is what we, we call it in those days. And I would remind that I didn't do what y'all did. I mean, I wasn't supposed to. And and, and, and my mother, I, I was really, and well, you you know, I mean, we've been to lunch enough to know that, you know, I, I'm really picky about eating and certain things I don't like. You know, I, I don't eat every part of a pig. I, I just, I can't do it. Uh, and so my mother would, I, I'd have a half-baked chicken when they were having, you know, See, something we, else. We can relate. I'm the baby boy, and my, you know, my, my <laughs> brother and sister always, you know, say that. Oh, you just? I was like, no. You know, one, I saw the mistakes that y'all made, and you know, I just have what I like. But that's why we can relate being the, the youngest boy. <laughs> oh, 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 without a doubt. And so, and I and I did like sweets a lot. And frankly, at our house, my mother didn't make one pie. She made at least four, and sometimes a couple of cakes. And and one of those pies would be just for me. <laughs> you got to understand that now. And plus, I had an aunt, my mother's only sister, who didn't live that far away, was always baking stuff for me. Uh, and, and again, they they thought I was, you know, just babied gotcha. a little too much. Gotcha. So you know, you you are you know, I'm gonna say empowered and equipped and ready to head off to North Texas State for college. Uh, what led you to journalism? Was it something you knew early on you wanted to do, or did you arrive and didn't and say, you know, I think this is what I want to do? Interesting enough, my family thinks that they knew I was going to be a journalist by fifth grade. I decided by seventh grade that I definitely was going to be a journalist. And I based it on, because I mean, I was experiencing the civil rights movement mostly through television. And I could see Birmingham. I could see Little Rock. I could see Selma all on the television screen. screen, And, and this was being beamed to the world. And I knew that that was helping to change things. I mean, it progressed the, uh, the movement that Martin Luther King was involved in. Uh, just yesterday, I was talking with people on Martin Luther King's, you know, day anniversary that he came here in 1959. And yet the local paper didn't cover him. And had it not been for Calvin Littlejohn, the black photographer who documented, you know, the black community for over 50 years, we would have had no record of that ever happening. So I saw what journalism could do. And I, I wondered if I could do that. Now, when I went out to college, because no paper in Texas had a black reporter. No television station had a black uh, reporter or producer or anything. I thought I would have to leave Fort Worth in order to practice that journalism. As it turned out, the day I graduated from high school, I mean, from college, the Star-Telegram offered me a job. You know, so you graduate, you come to back home being the first black journalist with the Fort Worth Star-Telegram, you know, did you have a sense of pride or was did you feel like, okay, now the work really begins? Actually, I was the second. Cecil Johnson had actually been hired 
is the first. The Star-Telegram in 1968, I guess it was, this is after the current commission report, that blamed the media, well, said America was, was divided by two sides. I mean, one white, one black. But it also still said that journalism had a lot to do, the media had a lot to do with our separate societies because they didn't cover uh, black people. And they recommended that more blacks be involved in the media. And so you, at that time, 1968, you had people uh, from the New York Times to the Houston Chronicle to the Forward Star Telegram looking for people, one person technically, to hire. So they would have one person. Uh, Cecil Johnson was working for IBM at the time. He too had gone to North Texas State uh, and majored in English, but he was working for IBM or, or, or some big company, and they recruited him to come work. I came a year later yes. after him, uh, but he worked for the, the Star-Telegram had two papers at the time, one evening, one morning. He was on the evening paper and I worked for the morning paper. But, and, and it was competition. You know, I mean, we, we were at the courthouse or city hall and we were treating each other like we didn't work for the same company because you were out trying to get the scoop. But yeah, I mean, but it, it was a sense of pride that suddenly I was going to be there covering my community and that the community quickly embraced me. I would get more calls than anybody at the paper because they saw somebody they could talk to and they wanted me to tell their story. I couldn't tell every story, but I was able to tell a lot of them. And the same was true when I went to Channel 13. I mean, the Hispanic community and the black community embraced me immediately. Uh, Pancho Madrana, who was a great uh, uh, civil rights worker, uh, he, he worked with, oh, some of the great Cesar Chavez, for example. In fact, he called me one day and says, Cesar Chavez is in town. You want to interview him? I'll bring him over. And to this day, I have a letter from Cesar Chavez thanking me for interviewing him. Uh, and, I, and I've gone to the school that's named for him in Fort Worth, and I've mentioned that to the kids, and I hold up the letter and, and say, Cesar Chavez, he wrote me this letter, uh, and I'm still humbled by it. Did it take a lot of work to build up the trust from the community to know to come to you for the stories or, you know, to trust that, you know, if they came to you, one, you was going to report it fair, but also you were going to ask the right questions and ask the tough questions? You know, it's amazing because one day I started uncovering the federal beat at the at the paper. And and that meant the federal courthouse, and it meant Carswell Air Force Base, it meant the, uh, uh, the federal building with Chad, you know, several federal offices in it. And it was sort of a quiet beat and was a way to get your feet wet. But at one point, the Star Telegram uh, publisher called me and said, and I thought I had done something wrong. I mean, I said, you know, the publisher and the editor want to see you in his office. I said, golly, I was thinking about the stories I had done. In those days, we were doing four or five stories a day. I said, you know, what mistake did I make? Somebody's called. Like back then, they said they were going to send me to the county courthouse to take over for a guy who was leaving, going to the Associated Press. Uh, and I had covered for him on occasion, you know, and and they called me and they said, we're sending you to the courthouse. And it's the most racist beat that we have. Uh, we want you to know that if they won't accept you, they're not accepting the Star-Telegram, but we're going to cover it the way we want to cover it anyway. 
Uh, and as it turned out, between the community that I was trying to cover and the county, the official business of the county that I was trying to cover, somehow I won both. Uh, the county officials, particularly like the sheriff of, of, of the county at the time, Lon Evans, uh, the district attorney, uh, and, 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 well, you know how the courthouse works. I mean, I mean, there, there are offices that don't appreciate the other office. Right. So all of them were telling me stories about the other. And then, but, but the sheriff, I mean, he called me Bobby Ray. You know, I mean, he, he'd call me over at the, we had a press room in the court. Bobby Ray, why don't you move on over here to my office? And I get over to the office and he immediately get up and say, you know, I'm going to the little boy's room, but don't you look at that file on my desk over there. I'm, I'm going to be gone for about 15 minutes now, but don't you look at that file over here on my desk. He was going to say, as soon as he left, I looked at the file. And the next day I had a front page story about secret indictments that are being handed down to like 12 or 15 people. And my editor said, wait, where are you? If it's secret indictments, where are you getting inside? I said, from a very good source. You know? <laughs> uh, so, but but it was, it was those kind of things with the community. And again, I mean, I upset the community on occasion because, and, and it's, it's, it's amazing because we, we had a couple of representatives. We had uh, a couple of people on, you know, at City Hall or whatever, who didn't always do things as ethically as you would have hoped. And I would call them out on that, you know, and then they called me later and cussed me out. Uh, but I, I, I had to do it that way. And I, I could have been the one, and I won't even call his name, he's, he's dead now, but uh, who was very influential. Uh, and he was on the city council at one point, was a state representative. Uh, and, you know, I mean, it was a small federal grant that they gotten, but I, I saw where all of the money was going into his bank account. And I called him out on that, and he called and cussed me out. And uh, and he says, Robert, don't you understand? I'm just doing what the white boys do. The white boys do this all the time. I said, Leonard, go look in the mirror. You ain't no white boy. <laughs> you can't do that. So, but so I had that kind of relationship uh, with with people in both Dallas and Fort Worth. And to this day, uh, people in Dallas still say, you know, we we need you back over here uh, covering some of these stories because they're not being covered. Right. So you know. I want to go back a little bit to something that you said, you know, they came to you, they told you that the county, the county beat is one of the most racist beats that they have, you know, was that daunting to you? Well, you know, it was, it, but it was, it was not surprising. Keep in mind, when I was growing up, my parents, well, actually my mother and my older sister-in-law would be downtown every Saturday. Everybody's and little brothers that they would go to and occasionally one of the other department stores. But while they were over there, and they were going to spend three hours at least, right, you know, right around here. And, um, but I would go to the courthouse and play on the grounds along with my oldest nephew, most people think he's my brother. We'd play on the courthouse steps and we'd go inside the courthouse. Well, I mean, you go into the, uh, inside the courthouse and there's the colored water fountain. Uh, the restroom, there, there was, you know, a white and colored restroom. In fact, the colored restroom was in the basement of the building. And even at that young age, I'm talking about seven and eight years old, I'm thinking, wait, if, if the prejudice is so visible on these walls outside of the courtrooms, what must the courtroom be like? And that's when I first had my interest in criminal justice. And a lot of my career, frankly, has been spent on criminal justice issues. 
Uh, well, as, as you know anyway, but it's, I, so when I got down there, I knew I was going to cover it in a different way than most people had covered it. And luckily, as I said, there were people that were ready to uh, help me out. And interestingly enough, I mean, shortly before I retired from the Star-Telegram, I wrote a column saying that I was going to expose my deep throat. I had a deep throat at the courthouse. <laughs> uh, his name was Mr. Mills. He was a black shoeshine guy who had his booth in the basement of the courthouse. I would come through at least, you know, by 9.30 or so every morning. And an hour before, he had already shined the shoes of the sheriff or the DA or whoever. And he would say, you know, they're talking about doing this. They're talking about cutting the wages for the this, these people. And they're talking about that. I, I had my stories for the day just from that. But there was also a true of some of the elected officials who, I mean, had confidence in me that I, I would tell their stories as well. You know, something about telling the stories that kind of resonates with me. So, you know, what I do as a personal injury attorney, you know, oftentimes I represent individuals who have been, you know, hurt or injured through the negligence of others. And so I'm telling their story to either insurance companies or to uh, other opposing counsels. And one thing I always try to do is, is be accurate, but also uh, making sure that I represent them uh, uh, to the best of my abilities. And so when people trust you to be their source or sharing information, you know, what do you take on some type of added responsibility, one, to protect your sources, but also make sure that, you know, you are uh, putting out the information accurately? Oh, without a doubt, because uh, the the worst thing you can do is not protect the source right. or somehow tell who that source is and, and make them a target of some people, and in some cases, very powerful people, uh, and they can get hurt. Uh, I... I dealt with a lot of people who were in the criminal justice system, for example. And and there were times when we knew that these people should never have been charged, let alone convicted of certain things. And I spent part of my life just talking about people who were in jail who shouldn't have been in jail. But at the same time, when you, when you, when you take on that responsibility for being um, a provider of information, You've got to be as accurate as possible. And and, and 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 in those days, I mean, I mean, it was stringent. I mean, you you really had to have the facts. I mean, just one source wasn't good enough. You had to have usually at least two sources that you believed in. And then you had to get your editors believing in you that when you came with the source story, that it was going to be accurate. They wouldn't have to retract that, any statement or anything like that in, in your story. So... I had a great responsibility, and it was daunting for sure. And you would go home and go to bed sometimes wondering, rethinking, okay, did I tell it all right? Did I tell it correctly? And, you know, for the most part, I did. I mean, not that I never made a mistake, because I, I, I made my mistakes as well. But uh, I was trained so well, uh, first by those great professors at North Texas State who took an interest in me. And then coming here and being surrounded by those veteran reporters who sort of took me under their wings and those editors and, and let me go for it. And so, you know, uh, you said a lot of things and, you know, I, as a good journalist, you know, interviewer, uh, you do to your homework. And I think if I went to your website, I think I saw something that says a journalist you can trust. 
you know, what what does unpack that? What does that mean to you, a journalist you can trust? Well, you know, uh, it's interesting because when I went to Channel 13, there were two people who came to the the, the uh, television station the week I started. And these were two very interesting people. One was Renee Martinez. He had just been appointed to the Tri-Ethnic Committee to help oversee the school integration that the federal judge had implemented over there. The other was Al Lipscomb. Al Lipscomb was a fireball. He would eventually go on and be on the city council. But these are two people who came to me to say, whatever you need, we're going to help you get it. So, because we don't want you to fail. Because just in three shows, I mean, I, I think this is like the end of the week, my first week at Channel 13, in, in three episodes, they had seen something in me that said, we can trust him to tell it right, to tell it all. And, I mean, and that was sort of my, um, my mantra, tell it well, tell it all. And, and, uh, and, and people got a chance to see that. Uh, I remember <clears throat> I had a call one day, I'm telling, telling you how, how it works. Uh, the Black Panther Party in Dallas was bringing Angela Davis. And you probably know who Angela Davis is. I don't know if everybody does. But if you don't know Angela Davis, it's a perfect opportunity to Google who Angela <laughs> right. Davis is. Right. And they said, uh, we can get you an interview with her, but we can't tell you what she's going to be. I mean, they actually came to the station, picked me up, blindfolded me, <laughs> uh, and took me to this place. And I had to walk down some stairs. Uh and this is, they took the blindfold off, and there she was. I now know where that was. It was actually in the basement of a church. I mean, I, I came to figure out where that was over in South Dallas. But that's how they did it. The same thing when Farrakhan came, uh, when he was announcing his Million Man March. I was invited, along with Zan Holmes, who was the minister then, to meet him after that uh, performance. I, I call it performance, but after he had had his uh, speech uh, at the Dallas Convention Center to meet him in his hotel room. Again, they didn't tell you where the hotel was going to be. They took you there. And uh, I had one of the most interesting evenings of my life talking with Louis Farrakhan and had a chance to actually ask him, did you have anything to do with Malcolm's death? And How was that received? You know what? I mean, uh, better than I thought. He said, brother... And, and by the way, by the, this time, he had gotten out of his suit and his bow tie, and he was in a, like a Calypso shirt with sandals and, and very relaxed. And we're sitting in the living room of the suite. And he is, he's calm, and he's saying, of course not. How, how could anybody even think that? You know, I, I respected Malcolm, and, and, and he went on. But it was a question that, as a journalist, that a lot of people were asking, that if you had an opportunity to be with them and you didn't ask it, you didn't do your job. Right, right. So, and again, I mean, not to judge him one way or the other, but I asked him and, and he answered it the best way he thought he should. You know, you, you're telling a lot about different stories that you covered, and I know this is going to probably be tough, but, you know, what's, what's if you if you had to pick... The, your favorite story or, you know, something that you will always remember. I know you remember a lot of the, you know, the things that you've covered, but what's that one memorable story that you covered? 
Well, the stories that, that I've covered that I remember the most and, I, and I'm most proud of are not the ones involving famous people. They're, they're people who are struggling. You tell their story. Uh, there was a teacher at Dunbar High School who, had, who needed a liver transplant. He was losing his house. Uh, and we had to figure out a way. I mean, how do we tell his story to get him some help? Uh, he had already lost his insurance. He, I forgot how much money he needed, uh, number one, to, to get the transplant, but also to pay for the house and all that. I told his story in about three or four different columns, and we ended up raising, uh, as a result of that, over $50,000. So, I mean, it was that kind of story. Uh, there was a guy named, by the name of Henry Martinez Porter. Uh, his story uh, it was the first execution that I ever witnessed. Uh, and, and this was a guy who was from San Antonio, but had killed a police officer in, in Fort Worth, in Tarrant County. And he saw something. He was back here on a bench warrant for something on an appeals case. And he wrote me a letter from Tarrant County Jail. I went to see him. And we became friends. I mean, I mean, I mean legitimate friends. Uh, and, you know, I was fighting, hopefully, that he would never get executed. And one Sunday morning, I, I got a call from a chaplain down there. And uh, he said, uh, Mr. Sanders, it looks like Henry's going to go this time, meaning that the execution was set for Tuesday night, and um, it's probably going to happen. There won't be any more delays. And he said, and Henry wants you to be there. He doesn't want his family. He wants you. And this is on Sunday morning. And, of course, you say yes, because, I mean, what else can you say? And then later that same day, I got a call from Henry's brother in San Antonio who said, uh, Mr. Sanders, the war, I mean, the uh, chaplain said that you uh, agreed to go. We appreciate that. And if Henry does go on Tuesday night, we want you to know that uh, we're going to have, you know, the uh, rosary for him on Thursday down in San Antonio. We'd like you to come and be with the family. Well, as it turned out, um, I did go. Uh, and when they opened the curtains, you know, for us to, to see, Henry was already there. He already had the needle in his arm. And they asked him if he wanted something to say. Now, the reason I was glad in the long run that I was there, I mean, it's very painful, is that he gave one of the most eloquent speeches that I've ever heard anybody give, let alone somebody who was on a gurney with a needle in his arm, ready to leave here. Because he said, you know, they talked about me being cold-blooded. Let me tell you what's cold-blooded. And he named three cases where police had killed people who should not have been killed, including the 11-year-old Santos Rodriguez, who was killed by a Dallas police officer while he sat handcuffed in a police car. Uh, Jose Capistores, who, who was killed and thrown in the, in the bayou in Houston. And he said, that's what cold-blooded is. And I had a chance to come back and tell that because usually those stories, you get what, what was his last meal? How long did it take him to die? You know, or how long was it before they pronounced him dead? They don't really tell you what he said. And I had a chance to tell his story. You know, that's, that's pretty tough. You know, I imagine being in that situation. One, you know, it's a, a stranger that became a friend who ultimately you was there at his, you know, at, at his end. 
you know, did that have like any lasting? Well, because clearly it has some lasting impact, but did that kind of shake your core? Well, well, actually, I mean, it, it had a more than lasting impact. I mean, impact even to this day. I mean, I've been against the death penalty since I was in high school. I debated it in high school. I debated it in college. I mean, and I, I, I never make uh, any kind of so-called rational excuses or exceptions. I, I'm, I'm just against it. Uh, after witnessing Henry's death, I became even more committed to fighting against uh, the death penalty. And we made progress, even though a lot of people didn't consider it progress, but, you know, for oh, years, we, we tried to get uh, the legislature to pass uh, a law saying, you know, uh, life without parole as an alternative to the death penalty, or at least give the jurors that time. And three sessions in a row, the legislature turned that down because they knew that if they, jurors were given that option, they would choose it. As we've seen now, since they passed that, I've seen that. Uh, the law of parties, which you probably know more about as, as a as lawyer than most people do, you know, the fact that I'm with you and you go and kill somebody, I'm, I'm as guilty as you are for that. And we had a, the, in fact, the first person executed after there had been a hiatus of executions was a man from Fort Worth. Um, uh, Charlie, I'm trying to think of Charlie's last name. But anyway, uh, he, and, and, and he grew up in Riverside, I mean, where, you know, part of where I grew up in my elementary school, I mean, right down the street from my elementary school. There was a person who had been killed during the robbery. He and Ralph Lalgers had been convicted. Interestingly enough, Ralph Lalgers, whom many people thought had actually done the shooting, won an appeals case, and they overturned his death penalty case, and he was given 40 years. Charles came up and said, oh, wait a minute. Uh, this is not right. I mean, why is, why is he getting this and I'm not getting that? Anyway, they executed Charlie. Um, and to the, and as it turned out, I mean, uh, Ralph, just, I mean, Ralph just died this past year. But uh, I wrote a column telling that story about, and I was trying to talk about, the, you know, the law of parties and how that shouldn't be, you know, honored anymore. And... Uh, and I got a call from the minister over in Riverside. He says, you mentioned Ralph Loudra's name. I said, yeah, I did. I mean, he was one of the defendants and he in 40 years. And he said, he said, well, he's out now and he's working in the church. And he said, he said, you shouldn't have done that. I said, well, I mean, I can understand you thinking that way, but no, I mean, I was just telling the story. And I said, I'd be willing to tell Ralph's story if he wants me to. He, he, he never did do it. I actually went out on one of their community activities over in Riverside, and he was there. I saw him, talked to him very briefly, uh, but uh, he never would uh, confess to that. You, you know, it's interesting when you say go back and, you know, go out into the community. You know, I imagine after, you know, writing some of the columns that you did, you know, taking the stances that you did. How was it like going back into community where you met with, you know, a lot of swearing and a lot of, you know, or were you were you embraced because of what you were doing? It, it, it just depends. Uh, I have two sisters. I mean, um, uh, my oldest sister, 
who used to live in Detroit and just moved back a couple of years ago. Uh, they, uh, they both go to the same church over in Forest Hill. And, uh, and I got, I got this call from, the, from, uh, one of them who said, uh, the, it's the Church of Christ. So, I mean, I think they're called brothers or whatever. But said, brother so and so was talking about you at church. And he's basically saying, this Bob Ray Sanders guy, who, who, who does he think he is? <laughs> Writing start talking. Of course, and I'm my two sisters who are very, you know, uh, protective of me, turn to each other and say, oh, no, he won't. Oh, no. And they're talking. I said, listen, y'all, don't, don't worry about trying to, you know, stand up for me in the community. And there's a minister over at Concord Church uh, who was a great George Bush supporter. And, of course, I was very critical of George W. Uh, for a while. And, uh, and I get these calls. I Bob Ray, you, I mean, you ought to stop that. I mean, you ought to cut that out. Going back, I mean, it, it could be uh, rewarding at times, but it can be very uh, uh, painful at times because, I mean, they, they didn't miss words, right. you know. Right. No, I mean, you, you had no right doing this one. I mean, you should have stopped before you got to that. I mean, you shouldn't be criticizing your own or whatever. Yeah. Well, you know, despite, you know, the, the tough criticism, but also the love and embrace, you know, you receive, you know, it still hasn't stopped you for wanting to give back to the community, you know, and I know you mentioned a lot about, you know, how you were raised and how your community kind of poured into you. But, you know, is that kind of what drives you to want to give back to the community? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that I was brought here for a reason and, and it wasn't just to serve myself. Uh, and that's what people poured into me. I'm to all of those people. Mrs. Tucker, who lived next door to us. I mean, you know, this widow woman. Uh, and and I didn't all, I wasn't always that empathetic because you know, my father told me every time I moved our yard, I had to mow hers and that I'd better not take any money from her. Uh, and, and I would, I, I resented that to a degree. So wait a minute, I, I got to mow her yard. And every time I finished mowing her yard, she opened this little black change purse where she had two or three dollars rolled up and she'd unfold one of them and hand it out to me, knowing I couldn't take it because my father wouldn't allow that. But when I'd come home from college on the weekends, I mean, just before I went back, I'd get this phone call, usually, Mrs. Tucker, saying, before you go back to school, stop by here, I got something for you. And she would have, you know, a German chocolate cake or something for me to take back to school. And of course, I, I saw what that meant, uh, you know, at the time to her, because in, in a way I was representing a lot of people. I, I didn't think about it necessarily then, but I, I came to realize that people are seeing themselves in me in some way, or they're expecting me to do what they weren't allowed to do or couldn't do. So I, I had to represent. So yeah, I mean, it, it, it was uh, it was interesting being able to do that, and the, and the community was has been there for me. And even to this day, as you know, I mean, we serve on the task force together. Uh, there are still people who don't like necessarily everything we did or, or thought that we got duped uh, because the city council still didn't do all the things that we said they should be doing, uh, particularly when it comes to criminal justice, which you were very uh, involved in as chair of that, ta of that uh, subcommittee. 
Yeah, but hey, you do what you do. Right, right, right. And you know, I guess you know, I guess one thing you you mentioned too is you know bringing up the task force, which you know ultimately you were called upon by former mayor uh, Betsy Price. Uh, you know, how does it feel knowing that there's elected officials or leaders or community leaders that 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 come to Bob Ray for you know the time of trouble or for advice or guidance? You know, how does that feel? Well, it's, it's interesting because I never thought I'd be in the position. Uh, you know, Jim Wright, the former uh, Speaker of the House, he became one of my mentors. Now, I, growing up, I never thought I would become a friend of the Speaker of the House. Ruth Carter Stevenson, who was Eamon Carter's daughter and who was head of the uh, Eamon Carter Museum for a long time. I mean, I was just a cub reporter when she first met me, but somehow... I mean, she endeared herself to me, and we we became friends. Now, I never thought I would be friends with a Carter of any kind, <laughs> let alone the daughter of Eamon Carter, or to the Speaker of the House and all that. And and they were truly friends. Now, we we had good discussions where we disagreed. Uh, and as, as some of the people say, oh, Bob Ray, yeah, they come to you because, you know, every time they got something controversial, every time they got something to deal with black people, they're going to come to you. They're looking for you to, you know, get, give them the okay to go where they're going to go anyway. And so, I mean, it comes with different kinds of um, stripes, I guess I should say, because some people like that about you. Other people uh, abhor that because they think that, I mean, you're just being used or whatever. Uh, I'm, I'm careful enough now to know how to be used. I mean, when, when I meet with the public official, whether it was the former mayor, and, and it was interesting because uh, she and I d- didn't always agree by any means, uh, but I, I could at least talk to her and she would listen. And sometimes she actually agreed with some of the things I was telling her and, and, and that she proceeded to move forward in that way. Same with the current mayor, to a degree. I mean, I, I can get along with her, uh, and and we certainly disagree like uh, on this uh, idea of having uh, a review board for a citizens review board for the police department, which they turned down recently. Uh, and, I, and I can tell you this: I, I I've had a meeting with her since then, and I said that was a bad decision. I still believe that, and I always believe that, and I think you can correct it. I hope you'll try at least. So, I mean, that, that's about all you can ask for. You can't make people. I'm not a stone thrower, right. you know, uh, but if I'm going to throw a rock, as my daddy used to say, I'm not going to hide my hand. Right. So you, you you don't have to wonder about how I feel. Just ask me. Right. Hey, and I, I like you said that, you know, if, if, if I'm going to throw a rock, I'm going to, you know, uh, not hide my hand, you know, and that same kind of breath, is there, you know, is there some type of, you know, a quote, a Bible verse or something that you, you know, when when times get hard or some type of advice that you always revert back to or check, you know, it's like, okay, let me read this or, you know, let me think about what Miss Tucker told me when I was younger or what my dad or my sister said. Is there something that you kind of go back to for your refuge? Well, I mean, I, I, I rely a lot on the poets and the prophets. I mean, I quote them a lot. I quote Langston Hughes quite a bit. Uh, just the other day for an event, uh, a friend of mine, a longtime friend, Gwen Morrison's husband, Gwen Morrison is on the uh, 
the Tarrant County College District Board, uh, and he had his 80th birthday the other day. Uh, and, and I sort of saw him as the elder brother. Uh, and what came to mind was the song, He Ain't Heavy, He's My Brother, which is the way I always saw Ben. Uh, he was always giving advice to people. And I don't even know how I remembered it, but I remember the lyrics of that song. That I mean, I have a responsibility to my brother. And as long as I have that responsibility, I know he ain't heavy. He's my brother. Uh, the, the, the scripture that often comes to mind is, Owe no man anything but to love one another. For he that loveth another has fulfilled the law. And for this, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery. And if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And so that's, 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 those are the kinds of people I fall back on. Uh, from the scriptures and from the poets, I quote Langston quite a bit. Uh, I wrote to Dossie Davis and Ruby D on a project for PBS for several years, uh, and they gave me so much wisdom. I find myself quoting them, and it comes, you know, it, it hits you. Uh, while, while you're experiencing things or while you're talking to people and you're trying to give them inspiration and you come up with things that people gave to you as inspiration. Right. No, no, I, I like that a lot. You know, it's something I'm going to personally take down because, you know, I come across a lot of people at some of their lowest points of their lives where they they least expect it. And, you know, sometimes not a, they don't look for me just as their attorney, but sometimes they look for me as their, you know, their therapist, as their financial advisor. And so, you know, oftentimes I, I revert back to my experience to where, you know, what did Bob Ray tell me a couple of <laughs> years ago or what did Anthony Lyons tell me or what did my wife tell me that I can pour into, you know, people that I'm helping them at their lowest point, but also uh, pouring into them something that's going to help them as they move forward. So, uh, you know, I, that's very helpful for or that you do the same thing. Oh, yeah, definitely. You know, uh, you've seen a lot, you've experienced a lot, uh, but, you know, as we continue to move forward, Fort Worth is what, the 12th largest, you know, city in the country now. Uh, you know, what do you see as the future for Fort Worth or for this community? Or what are you hopeful to, that that comes about? Well, you know, I, I'm encouraged to a degree. But I was telling some friends of mine recently at, at a panel discussion over in Dallas uh, a few weeks ago. I am not as hopeful as I once was. I, I am fearful uh, when I see where our community is going and our country is going. Because, I mean, there are people now who hate me simply because I'm a journalist. Okay. I mean, they, 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 they don't want journalism. They, they, they want a person that they already agree with to tell them what they should be doing in these times of trials and tribulations. Uh, I see us going backwards. Some of the things that I was fighting for, I'm talking about voting rights and, uh, and, and civil rights in general, I see a regression and the things that I thought that I would live to see and live to see successfully, I'm now seeing the clock being turned back. Uh, and, and the same goes for Fort Worth. In fact, I, I, and I told, I told the mayor this just the other day. I said, when, when I saw the city council divide along racial lines on a very important issue, the way I saw Dallas do a lot in the 1990s, for example, 
And I said, Fort Worth would never be like that. And I actually saw it. I was in this council chamber when the vote came and you had all the black city councilmen voting this way and all the white city council members, except one, voting the other way and winning. I said, that's not a good sign for Fort Worth. And if you're a mayor, you don't want to see that sign. Uh, and it's on, on you to try to prevent that from happening. So uh, I, I'm, I'm still hopeful. I'm still going to be in the fight. I realize now I'm going to die in the fight. And I guess I always knew that. But I thought I would have seen more progress than I'm now seeing. And that bothers me. So, you know, if, if, if I know you did a lot, but, you know, can you offer some suggestions or advice on how we can, you know, correct itself before we go further to the direction you think that we're headed? Well, one thing, and I, and I think it is through the electoral process to a great degree, but I, I'm, I, leadership is what we need. And we need new leadership, new infused leadership in various communities. You know, we're adding two new city council districts. It's going to be interesting to see how the city council breaks down in terms of numbers of minorities on the next city council meeting. We need uh, young people with ideas and commitment not just trying to make another dollar. I mean, it's okay, make 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 the dollar, if you will. But if you don't have a commitment to, to community and to the city, we really don't need you. Right. And so, I mean, I, and I, I think it's on us, and particularly us older generation folk, to keep encouraging young people to get involved in the process and help them see the light, if you will, help them... Uh, make the progress that they need to make and, and, and just be there. I mean, you don't have to tell them what to do. Just be there to listen every now and then, to give them a little advice every now and then. Not, not to whip them into shape, but just, just to be there. Right. right. I think I like, I love, not, not like, I love what you said about, you know, if, if you're not going to be for a community, then move out the way. You know, that's that's something that I take pride in is, is being for the community and making sure that, you know, I leave something better than where I found it. And, you know, one of the biggest reasons for, you know, creating this platform to have people like yourself is to give back to the community, to one, to to give the flowers to those who've been making an impact in our community or who are actively doing things. And so that really resonates with me. And so, uh, you know, just to kind of transition a little bit from that is, you know, you've been at this fight for a long time. You know, uh, I know you jokingly say that you're, you're retired, uh, but you're still, you know, very active. Uh, but, you know, when you look back and, you know, when we <clears throat> have your, probably third or fourth retirement party. Uh, what, what is something that you are going to want to share with everyone about, you know, your your long storied, you know, uh, award-winning career in all facets of life? Well, you, you know, the thing is, is that when you leave here, and, and you just said it, I mean, you hope to leave it a little better off than it was when you got here. Uh, and, I, and I think I'll be able to say that. Not going far enough, but... a, a Going to a degree where people can see that there was some change that you helped make or bring about. At the same time, you don't want to get so consumed with that 
that you forget that the struggle isn't over, that the fight isn't over. Uh, uh, the old spiritual, you know, I don't feel no ways tired. Well, the truth is you do get tired. Right. And I, I, nothing makes me more tired than seeing the same thing happening today that I saw 40 years ago. You do get tired. Uh, but, but the last part of the thing is that you know, he didn't bring me this far to leave me. So the spirituality comes in that sometimes when it seems like you're alone, that, that, that you don't have enough people around you, you're never alone. You're never alone. So somebody's going to be there for you. And I, and I tell a lot of the young people that I work with today, and, I, and I'm encouraged by the fact that there are a lot of young people who are ready to do it. There are too many that were not ready to do it, to start to stand up and, and, and make a change. But there are young people who are ready to do it. And I just put myself out there and said, hey, if I can help you do something, let me know. Because if I can, I will. That's, that's good. Now, you know, this... This has been a breath of fresh air. You know, you and I uh, oftentimes get to connect. We, we, we're probably overdue for when we've been able to sit down and connect. But, you know, I just want to personally thank you for, one, coming on this platform, sharing a story, allowing us to get a little bit behind the scenes of who Bob Ray Sanders is. Uh, uh, this has really been, you know, a truly a one-in-a-lifetime experience for me. So, Thank you for not only coming on, thank you for your time, but thank you for everything that you've done for the community, but also thank you for everything that you've done for me. Well, likewise, thank you for what you're doing for this community. I got to tell you, man, uh, <laughs> you are a great interviewer. No, uh, no. So uh, this is the natural calling for you. No, no. So, hey, <laughs> you call up Channel 11 and, and Channel uh, 5 and say, hey, I'm ready. No, but that's all I have. It's good enough. I, I'm, I'm around, bro. No, I appreciate it. Thank you for watching today's episode. If you're watching on YouTube, please be sure to subscribe. Otherwise, look for us anywhere you find podcasts.